Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a sunny day here in the capital as once again we ensure that we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. My name is Scott Challoner and later on in today's show we'll be joined by former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. But first and foremost I'm delighted to be joined on the programme by Dr Vern Neville. Vern is the managing partner at ESP Fitness, a global leader in a innovative, user-friendly, high-performance power and strength training equipment and performance monitoring tools. Um, Vern, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme today. Scott, wonderful. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a real pleasure having you with us. And um, the reason we're here is to discuss, of course, your take on leadership first and foremost. But before we dive into that, considering that today's generation of business leaders is probably going through one of the greatest challenges of our time, I think it would be remiss of me not to ask you just how it's been trying to get through the COVID-19 situation over recent months, because I can imagine the challenges have been tremendous. Oh, Scott, uh, absolutely. I think for everyone, uh, you know, it's been very similar, but uh, it hit us extremely hard as it happened, and literally it was overnight. Uh, we are typically a B2B uh, company, and uh, all of our contracts literally dried up overnight. So um, it was traumatic uh, when it came on. Uh, we had goods that were in transit from the UK to Australia to Hong Kong uh, and to the UAE. Uh, all of those, we were supposed to be receiving them on the other end with our installation teams, and all of that dried up. Those contracts, uh, you know, payments for those contracts uh, were delayed. Uh, we couldn't get them installed, um, and and all of our ongoing contracts with all of, all of our commercial suppliers, and and all of our um, uh, our pro uh, sports teams, which is where we've really niched ourselves in the professional sports market. Uh, all of that had stopped, so it was it was devastating when it when it first happened. Absolutely. And when you sort of know that a crisis of real magnitude is on the horizon that you're going to have to steel yourself to deal with, how do you sort of mentally prepare yourself to sort of embrace that challenge? Well, Scott, I don't know if one can ever mentally prepare oneself. You can have all the contingency plans in place, and and uh, but but when it actually happens, something like this. Um, and it's so unforeseen, uh, it's very, very difficult to, uh, to, to be prepared for it. Um, I think uh, the, the, the challenge to us was uh, to, to be suddenly faced with the reality of what was happening and then to come up with a, a very fast plan of uh, it was either, either die or, or do something uh, really radical that was going to get us out of this. And, and we, you know, we managed to, uh, to come up with a, a contingency plan very, very quickly and and adapted or pivoted our business uh, literally overnight to 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 accommodate this. And from a leadership perspective, would you say that there is anything that this experience of crisis management has perhaps taught you? Absolutely, um, it's it's the key for for any leader, I think, and 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 the head of any organisation is the people within the organisation. Um, and for us, we were very very fortunate that. Uh, we've got a fantastic team uh, within our within our company, and we we pivoted. I, I, you know, I presented it to uh, to our company and, and to all of our staff and said, "Look, we we've got an option here. Either the chances of us going into administration are very very likely, but we can put everyone onto onto furlough, 
or we need to pivot our company and become a B2C company because you realize that the market was now going to be consumer-driven rather than uh, rather than biz- uh, uh, businesses that we were typically supplying, which means we've got to change our entire product range. And, uh, you know, it might be that we're going to be working, you know, 18, 20-hour days uh, for the next uh, few weeks or months to be able to pivot our company. And I gave that the choice to everyone to buy in. And everyone bought in immediately. There was there wasn't any hesitation at all. Everyone said that they would do everything they could uh, for us to survive the company and to get through this and to pivot our company. Um, and that's what happened. So um, so it, it really does come down to the people that you've got within you and and how well I guess it's how well as a leader you've you've managed to draw that group in. Uh, uh, but it's times like this when when their uh, resilience and their creativity. Uh, and their, their desire to to achieve something really comes to the forefront. It does in times of adversity. You're absolutely right. People do tend to really bring out the best in themselves. And I suppose um, in a leadership position, it's only natural for those people when they need a little bit of inspiration and direction to look at you as the leader, the figurehead for that. But when you are the person sort of running the operation at the top of the tree, as it were, when you sort of need a little bit of inspiration at a time like this, where is it, Vern, that you tend to look to for that? I think internally, I, I think I, I've always been driven no matter what. Um, I've, I've never been, uh, you know, I, I've been through some tough times throughout life, but there's never been a moment when, I ever, when, I've, when I've ever thought that, uh, you know, I'm not going to make this, I'm not going to win, I'm not going to come out of this. Um, and, and so I, I think th- there's never been a doubt in my mind. And, and I think even at the, the point of, of, of when COVID came in and we realized that things were going, uh, you know, really going to go bad. For me, it was there is always a solution. And I mean, I've you know, my, my life story really is you know, people keep saying to you, well, a door might close, but don't worry, another door is going to open. And, and my attitude is, has never been that. My attitude has been, you know, if the door does, if the door is closed on me, I'm just going to kick the door down. Uh, I'll find a way to get through that door. There is always a solution. And 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 I think that's that's been our approach. Uh, it's always been our approach with our company. It's been my approach with everything that I do in life. And uh, I think most most of our, our staff see that and and uh, and buy into that as well. What would you say, sort of looking back, was the moment when you really knew um, that going and running a business was going to be the path forward? <laughs> I think that's. Uh, I'm not sure that anyone, uh, well, I don't know, maybe lots of people do have a have a specific desire to be running a, a business. I think for me, it was an evolution, really. I've been a professional athlete most of my life, uh, and then uh, coming from a, a pro athlete, being being a head of performance uh, or athlete performance for uh, for a number of teams, and uh, and then at the end of my career, uh, it was just a progression, I guess, uh, to then trying to create. Uh, and do something unique. Um, I've, I've always wanted to be the best at whatever I've done, uh, regardless whether it was an athlete or, 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 or in creating uh, anything. And uh, it, so I don't think there was a specific moment in my life where I always thought that I was going to be a business owner or, or going to be my own boss in any way. I, I think it really was just um, a, a desire and need to create something unique, do something unique, and be the best at whatever it was that I was going to do. And I guess that just led to starting my own company, really. And sort of going, if you could actually go back on with the experience you have now to when you did form your own company, is there anything going forward that you might do differently or would you just embrace the journey that you've been on already? 
Oh, no, absolutely. I, I would do just about everything differently, to be honest. Um, and and very, it's, it's what amazes me is that in, in school, in university, that one isn't taught about finances, one isn't taught about how to open a business, start a business, or not even a business, but how to run your own personal finances. Um, and, and I think um, it's probably one of our biggest failures in, in society today is, is exactly that. And, you know, I've, I've, you know, I've, I've you know, gone through you know, undergraduate and master's degree and I have a PhD. And, and so, you know, I've been through the whole educational system. And, uh, and to be honest, starting a business is, is, is completely, it's like a blank piece of paper. You know nothing. Um, and to me, uh, if I was to start all over again, and I guess my advice to anyone starting a business is, is, is get a, a really good understanding of finances, get a good understanding of business management, of accountancy, um, and know your numbers before you start. Uh, because it seems very easy from the outset looking in that you can easily you know, come up with a new product or a new idea or a new service and, and just go out there and you know, try and raise some money and, and start a business. But the reality of it is unless you really understand finances very well, it's extremely difficult and extremely challenging. And the other point is um, don't ever be scared to ask for advice. And I think my whole way through, I was reinventing the wheel for years uh, until I realized the importance of as an athlete, you always you 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 become successful by 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 uh, by having a really good coach as an athlete. Uh, but we don't realize that in business, to become successful in business, is the principles are exactly the same. And the better your coach or your mentors are in business, the greater your success or your rate of success is going to be. So, um, so if I did start all over again, I would definitely have got a mentor or a business coach far uh, sooner, and I would definitely have. Uh, look to understand money and finances and uh, and business administration uh, right from the onset. It's a really important message that, isn't it? That we're not alone when we are leaders in business. There are plenty of other people out there that we can learn from, we can network, we can read into certain resources. And um, interestingly enough, just because there is that overlap uh, between um, sport and business within um, your um, life and career, uh, Vern, and because this issue has been really brought back into the limelight by the recent COVID-19 situation, when it comes to leadership, just how important do you think the issue of mental health and well-being is, both in terms of safeguarding your own in the hectic world of running a business and also that of those around you? I think I think mental mental health is extremely important, and and you know, it's been taken for granted for uh, for many many years and brushed under the under the carpet. And and uh, you know, thankfully nowadays it's it's you know it's being the awareness has has come to the forefront and and it's being addressed uh, far more. And and I, I think the mental well being of anyone and it does start from the leader. Um, and I think uh, the, the the greater the the, the positive energy and the positive vibe and the, the, the enthusiasm and passion that the leader has, um, the, the, the better the ability for that leader to be able to transfer that through to, through to the rest of the team. Um, so for me, it's absolutely critical. And, and, and a big part of our company is investing in the people. And when I say investing in the people, it's all of us to be investing in ourselves, in our own resources. So, you know, so we attend uh, you know, self-help workshops where we can. And, you know, we've got a, a really big drive and encouragement with our company uh, to, um, you know, to be, uh, to be following different, uh, different leaders that, that, that are helping us to become more positive, uh, 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 generate uh, a, be- a better understanding of ourselves and how we can become the best versions of ourselves 
Um, so that's a, a big part of our company, a big, big, uh, big part of what I do. Um, and, and, uh, you know, reading is, is a huge part of what I do. It's, it's, you know, being able to read and learn from those that have been successful in life before and those that have been through challenges and, and have come out the other side is extremely important. Um, so, yeah, mental, um, uh, uh, mental health is extremely important. And, and one thing that, 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 that so many people don't realize is, is uh, um, mental health and pro sports is, uh, is uh, at, at the end of an athlete's career, so many athletes struggle extremely, uh, um, find it very, very difficult coping with life after being a pro athlete. Uh, it's something that I went through at the end of my career. I had two years. I really struggled uh, with adapting uh, to normal life, and that's something that has made me stronger and and uh, and and brought me, uh, you know, given me the coping mechanisms to uh, to deal with uh, lots lots of the trials and tribulations that one goes through in starting a a new business. And having reflected on the uh, the past there, Vernon, I think it only serves as well that we talk about the future just before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme today. Um, we're all very aware, of course, of the fact that over the next 12 to 18 months, we are going to have to adjust to a new way of working, a new way of life. But what is on the horizon during that period, do you think, for you and for ESP Fitness? And what do you really hope to achieve during that period? Uh, for us, we're extremely excited. Uh, to be honest, it, 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 I almost uh, feel guilty in some ways that, you know, at, at first COVID was, was uh, you know, we thought that this was the end of the world for our company, but then we managed to pivot into the B2C market. Uh, and uh, so we've got a brand new market now. So not only have we got this market, which is a growing market for us in the consumer market, but also we've got our existing uh, B2B market, which which although that is slow and it's probably going to be a good 12 to 18 months before that that really strengthens again, uh, we've got that as uh, as a market that's coming up ahead of us as well. So from our perspective, we're extremely excited. Uh, we you know we we see the whole phase of where we're going uh, at the moment to be very very positive. So um, yes, yeah, so we, we we're encouraged. Uh, we you know we we're employing more staff at the moment. We we've, we've almost doubled. Uh, our staff capacity to what we had uh, six months ago. Uh, so, so our growth in our company is, is, has been exponential literally in the last three, four months. That's certainly very positive. And it just goes to show that even though it has been an incredibly sensitive and difficult time for many, there are still opportunities there for business to seize upon. Absolutely. Um, Vern, I have to say, it's been a real pleasure having you join us on the other uh, programme today and a most insightful experience hearing of your pandemic experience and your views on leadership. And considering that there are still a great many variables in just how this is all going to pan out. I actually think it would be wonderful in a few months' time to catch up and have you back on the programme with us just to see where the business is at at that point and we can just assess exactly what the marketplace and the economy is looking like as well. Scott, we'd love, we, we would, I would love to join you again. Thank you very much for the opportunity to uh, chat to you today. It's been fantastic, Vern. Real pleasure. And most importantly, until we do hopefully speak again, please do take care and stay safe with all still going on. Thank you, Scott.
I was speaking today to Dr. Vern Neville, managing partner at ESP Fitness. And just to reiterate that message to all of those of you tuning in today, please do continue to look after yourselves and others. Be sensible with the lifting of restrictions because it does make a real difference in saving lives. Um, Next up on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. Um, During his playing days, Sir Andrew joined an illustrious club of just three England captains to have secured the Ashes both at home and away in Australia as well as racking up the second highest number of test victories for an England skipper in history. Since retiring from playing, Sir Andrew has been appointed the Director of Cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board. I hope you all enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with Sir Andrew and all of that is of course coming up next. Hello and welcome, I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former Director of Cricket at the ECB. Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dresscothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at, the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you really got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And... Um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost I'd been I was a Middlesex player I was mm. captain of Middlesex all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever and then a week later I've scored a test century which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life and then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean it was literally the dream so and then suddenly I started thinking wow hold on I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails so it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think... In those early years of your career, it's so important, I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people, and this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, 
um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive mm. um, source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of, because I, th I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that, but... I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the, the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open-top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, Andrew, because there's, there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance, and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know I felt like I'd really arrived as well a done. celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but uh, I did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch 
uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that. You know, that, that wasn't a moment, that was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough, you're privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you were looked on, up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, Andrew, what qualities... Does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed... And this applies, again, to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team. Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there, there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment. And uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to, tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So... You know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with, with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team... Um, being looked up to what would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it just generally about leading I, I a think team so, okay yes. uh, number one thing about leadership i'm absolutely certain about this is 
that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or, some, or whatever it might, you might term to, to make sure that the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, it um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter you know, how gregarious and, and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of cricket at the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job um okay so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the world cup on home soil in yes. 2019 uh i was firstly i was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in world cups and this includes my time as captain we just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night and it never was um and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. And yeah. the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was, I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so, so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know you but when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some. It, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of 
you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I, actually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your, in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women, that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top ten cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare; it's probably a misnomer. But it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help. Uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we... I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We're, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health, and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's the, it's the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year, so if you could tell us about some of those, that would be... Yeah, so the... Uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is... Uh, yeah. A very inclusive, if you're thinking about 
think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc andrew wearing red uh, wearing red so it w w what an extraordinary yeah. thing yeah well a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely yeah. you know they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the english summer uh, just like the mcgrath foundation days yes. in, in sydney and australia well it's been a complete inspiration um and uh, i very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well absolutely. um before we go, because I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket um, but more importantly um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day one game a day over a six-week period broadcasters will pay money for that and therefore what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills if you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm gonna have to choose between either supporting a team base at the Oval or a team base at Lords. I i I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well surely it's gotta be the Lords one, right? That of course. Yeah. <laughs> um Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. 
The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.